Last week, we opened a new sermon series in the book of Revelation. And when you first hear that, your mind may jump to the bizarre imagery and symbols of the book of Revelation, along with the just as bizarre interpretations of what it all might mean. But for these sermons, we're staying in the early chapters of the book. Specifically, we're focusing on the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. As we saw last week in chapter 1, the book begins with the risen Christ in all of his power, beauty, and glory, giving John a message to share with each of these seven churches. So John faithfully writes down everything he sees and hears. He shares it with those seven churches, and Christians like us and churches like ours can still benefit from reading those messages today. So this morning we pick up with church number two, located in the city of Smyrna. What can Jesus's message to those Christians teach us about our church and teach us about ourselves? So open up to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we move forward, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for another Sunday. Uh, Father, we're entering a time of year uh, when the seasons are changing. And before you know it, it's going to be fall. And before you know it, it's going to be winter. Uh, And Father, through the changes of this world, uh, through the seasons coming and going, through the things in our lives that we can't predict, uh, through the things in our lives that change and adjust and, and go away and come in unexpectedly, you are stable, you are consistent, you are reliable, and Father, we simply put our trust in you. We put our rest in you, and thank you that we can trust you. Father, I pray that you'd be with us as we read your word. I pray that we would learn something from these Christians a long time ago. Uh, It's very easy to read about people 2,000 years ago and think that we have nothing in common with them. Uh, But we might have more in common with them than we realize. And so, Father, I pray that we would learn from their example, uh, but we would learn from your word and learn from what you say to them and how it might apply to us. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the first and the last who died and rose. We give you all the glory, and we give you our thanks, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we read about the church in the city of Ephesus. And of the seven different cities where these churches in Revelation were located, Ephesus was by far the largest, some 250,000 people. And while Smyrna is not as big as Ephesus... Smyrna could still give Ephesus a good run for its money in a few other ways. Smyrna was likely about 200,000 people, so still large in its own right. It was only 35 miles north of Ephesus on the edge of the Aegean Sea. With these two cities being so close, you can almost imagine a rivalry taking place between them, kind of like Fishers and Carmel, or Fishers and Noblesville, or Noblesville and Carmel, whatever you want to think. But then on top of that, this city of Smyrna had an incredibly useful port for importing and exporting goods. It featured a stadium, a library, and the largest public theater in all of Asia at that time. Smyrna was the birthplace of Homer, the famous poet, the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, two of the greatest works of literature ever written, still being read today. 
Mount Pegasus was in the center of Smyrna. It featured beautiful temples all over it and an imposing acropolis right on top. The road going around the mountain was so impressive that it was referred to as the Street of Gold. Coins in Smyrna made the claim that it was first in Asia in beauty. In the year 80 AD, Smyrna won Ancient Money Magazine's Best Place to Raise a Family Award. I made that one up, but it probably would have. The point is that Smyrna may not have been as big as Ephesus, but it was still one of the most impressive cities around. But the truth is that behind all of its splendor, this seemingly perfect city also had a dark side. The city of Smyrna was fiercely loyal to Rome, and it demanded that its people give the emperor their worship. Around 156 AD, a Christian leader by the name of Polycarp was burned alive in the city of Smyrna because he refused to renounce his faith in Christ and worship the emperor. In addition, there was a large Jewish population in Smyrna that was aggressively hostile towards Christians. If you put it all together, opposition from the Romans, opposition from the Jews, for all of its glory and even with its sparkling reputation, Smyrna was not an easy place to be a Christian. And we see that in today's passage, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The church in Smyrna is facing intense pressure for their faith. Namely, they're being subjected to economic persecution. We see that in verse 9. The Christians there were having a hard time buying the things they needed. Their money was no good in Smyrna. They may have had a hard time finding jobs, and many people may have intentionally stayed away from their businesses, all because of their faith in Christ. And over time, this leads the Christians in Smyrna into material poverty. But Jesus reminds them in our passage that while they may be poor in terms of worldly wealth and possessions... Really, they are spiritually rich. As he says in Matthew chapter 6, these Christians had treasure in heaven that moth, rust, or their persecutors in Smyrna could not destroy and could not take away from them. But then on top of the economic persecution, these Christians are subjected to slander from those who say that they are Jews but are not. We saw that in verse 9 as well. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that? Look momentarily at John chapter 8, starting in verse 39. This is a conversation between Jesus and some Jews of his day who were going back and forth on whether or not to believe in him. So we see the conversation. The Jews answered Jesus, 
Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So in the book of Revelation, Jesus refers to those who think that they're God's people, but persecute Christians as a synagogue of Satan. That is a harsh insult. But then in the Gospel of John, he referred to the Jews who would soon persecute him as children of their father, the devil. Another harsh insult. These people claim to love God. They claim to be a part of God's family. But they have rejected Jesus. And Jesus says, if you loved God, you would love me. If God were really your father, you would love me. But they haven't done that. It's not unlike what we talked about over the summer in the book of Galatians. Paul argued that being a true Jew, being a true child of Abraham, being part of God's family, isn't about ancestry or ethnicity or circumcision or the law. It's about having the faith of Abraham. It's about recognizing what God is doing through his son, Jesus Christ. And apparently the Jews in Smyrna have failed that test because they have rejected Jesus. But then as if economic persecution and slander isn't already hard enough, Jesus warns the Christians in Smyrna that some of them are about to be imprisoned for their faith. We saw that in verse 10. Now the people in Smyrna may not realize it, but when they persecute Christians... They are doing Satan's work. Now, thankfully, the suffering won't last forever. Jesus says it'll only be 10 days. But that's long enough to test the faith and test the endurance of these believers. Now, there are other examples in Scripture of Satan testing God's people. God allowed Satan to test Job through unspeakable tragedy and loss. Satan tested Jesus in Matthew 4 while he was fasting in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. Satan can test us. He may even be able to hurt us. But ultimately, he cannot truly harm us. And that's why Jesus says that even with all these hardships, with the poverty, with the slander, with the imprisonment, 
And not just at the hands of people who hate them, but supported by Satan himself. Jesus looks at the Christians in Smyrna and he calls them to persevere. Specifically, he tells them not to fear what they are about to suffer. Do not fear. He says the same thing in Matthew 10, 28 to his disciples. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Those in Smyrna who hate them for their faith, and even the devil himself, cannot ultimately harm them. That's why the Christians there have nothing to fear, even though all the cards seem to be stacked against them. But then Jesus also reminds them of the crown of life that is waiting for them. Smyrna was known for its athletic competitions where the victor would receive a crown on their head or a wreath around their neck. But the crown that Jesus speaks of is one with eternal value. The one who conquers, the one who wears this crown can have confidence in the face of death, judgment, and hell itself. Paul talks about a crown in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. Paul was not a fan of participation trophies. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. And then at the end of his life, as Paul is staring down death in one of his final letters to his beloved son, Timothy. Paul looks to that crown for motivation. He looks to that crown for hope and endurance. He says in 2 Timothy 4, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So if you recap everything Jesus has said to these Christians in Smyrna, here's what you come up with. They're facing significant tribulation, economic persecution, slander, and maybe even some time in prison. And they aren't just being victimized by people who dislike their faith. They're being tested by Satan himself. But nevertheless, they are called to persevere. They're told not to fear. Because they have an eternal reward to look forward to. A crown that not even death itself can tarnish. But now the question becomes, well, how does this message translate over into our context? I mean, sure, being a Christian may pose the occasional challenge in our lives. But most of us are completely unfamiliar with the kind of suffering that the church in Smyrna experienced. So how does it translate over to us? Well, a few questions worth considering. If we ever come face to face with these kinds of tribulation, how would we respond? If being a Christian were to bring us into economic hardship, what would we do? What would we do if being a Christian meant that we couldn't get a job? Or if being a Christian meant that no one would sell us the things that we needed? Or if being a Christian meant that no one would support our businesses? 
what would we do? Would we abandon our faith for the sake of holding on to our wealth and our possessions? What would we do if being spiritually rich meant being materially poor? In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells two parables. The first is this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Another parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do we really believe like that man in the field or like the merchant searching for pearls? Do we believe that the kingdom of God is worth more than anything else this world offers us? Would we give up anything else we have joyfully for the sake of having the kingdom? Would we consider ourselves spiritually rich in Christ, even if we were materially poor? But then moving on from that, can we even handle slander, another form of persecution these Christians were facing? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do we really believe that? Could we ever truly consider ourselves blessed when we're being slandered? Is that anything to rejoice and be glad over? Well, Jesus says it is. Will we persevere in our faith if it meant everyone around us treated us like outcasts or undesirables? If it meant being insulted and disowned? If it meant being falsely accused and lied about or verbally attacked? Would we stand firm? And then what about prison? In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, we read this. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. By the way, if you're noticing what Rick and Linda are looking at, there is a spider on the floor. And Linda just smashed it. Thank you, Linda. That was a big spider. I could see it from up here. Now, where were we? The point is that... Do we really believe that we have a better possession in eternity than anything this world has to offer? Do we really believe that we have something, a treasure, a crown, a joy that is worth even going to prison for if it required it? And if it comes down to it, if we ever have to face anything close to the kinds of sufferings that the Christians in Smyrna faced, how would we withstand it? How would we persevere? How would we be faithful unto death? It's worth asking that if people hated us for our faith, 
And if Satan himself was allowed to test us, then how would we possibly make it through? Well, I think we would need the same things that Christ offers the Christians in Smyrna. Number one, Christ offers the Christians in Smyrna himself. Remember him. In verse 8, before he said anything about economic persecution or slander or prison, all this scary stuff, before Jesus said anything about that, he referred to himself as the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. It's worth remembering that no suffering we face is outside of God's sovereignty and power. Again, he's the first and the last. And no suffering that we will ever face will last forever. And no suffering that we will ever face can match the suffering that Christ faced on our behalf on the cross. He came and died and lived. And because of him, we too look forward to life after death. So as we suffer, remember Christ. And then keep your eyes on the prize, the crown. James chapter 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. When you suffer in this life, when it feels like the whole world is against you, and you even feel like Satan himself is testing you, remember Christ. And fix your eyes on the eternal reward he purchased for you with his broken body and shed blood. Now, earlier in the sermon, I mentioned Polycarp, a Christian in Smyrna, killed for his faith in Christ and his refusal to worship the emperor. Well, Polycarp was roughly 86 years old at the time of his death. Supposedly, he was one of the last living disciples of John, the one who wrote the book of Revelation. And legend has it that a few days before Polycarp was killed, he had a vision of his own death. He even warned his friends ahead of time that he was soon going to die for his faith. And when Polycarp was arrested, he didn't resist. He didn't fight back. He simply asked for time to pray before his death. And he was given multiple opportunities to renounce his faith in Christ. But each time he refused. He persevered to the end. And as he was burning alive, Polycarp is recorded to have said this. Eighty-six years I have served him. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? Of the seven cities in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Smyrna is the only one still in existence. It's now known as Izmir, located in modern-day Turkey. But like the other six cities, as well as every other man-made city, Smyrna, Izmir, whatever you want to call it, it won't last forever. One day it will fall. It may happen slowly. It may happen all at once. But the Christians in Smyrna who suffered, the Christians in Smyrna who received this message from Christ, the ones who were faithful unto death, the ones who conquered, they will live on forever. And may the same be true of us. May we also remember our King and Savior, the first and the last who died and came to life. 
May we persevere. May we keep our eyes on the prize, the crown of life that lasts into eternity. May we stand strong to the sufferings, the hardships, the persecutions, the pains, the joys, the sorrows, the ups, the downs, the mountains, the valleys. May we stand firm through it all and be faithful unto death, and may we conquer. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the joy and the privilege and the honor of reading your word and worshiping with these people. Father, I pray that those of us in this room who are suffering right now, those of us in this room who are just leaving a season of suffering, or those of us who are about to enter into a season of suffering and don't even know it yet, I pray that you would give us strength, that you would give us faith, that you would give us joy even uh, as we face those hardships. Father, I pray that we would be faithful unto death, that we would conquer, that we would persevere, not by our own strength, not by the sweat of our brows, but rather by keeping our eyes fixed on you, knowing that you suffered too, far more, far greater than we ever will, but also knowing that you are the first, you are the last, that you died and you came to life. And Father, may we keep our eyes on the prize. When life gets hard, when things go wrong, when it seems like everything possibly is going against us, may we fix our eyes on the prize that Christ bought for us. May we fix our eyes on the joy of worshiping you forever, being in your presence, calling you our Father, and seeing your glory. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.